good evening and welcome to the broadcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network for this Tuesday night edition. So once again, thank you for joining us. And tonight we have an interesting conversation lined up for you again. Tonight we're going to be talking to Andrew Gavin Marshall, who has been a guest on this program before. He's available at andrewgavinmarshall.com, which is his main site, but he also has uh, some others, including thepeoplesbookproject.com, which is the homepage of an interesting ongoing book project that we're going to be talking about in some detail tonight. And he's also a contributor to boilingfrogspost.com with the weekly podcast documentary um, commentary series called Empire, Power, and People. Uh, Very, very interesting discussions going on there all the time, so I certainly hope people are following that at BoilingFrogsPost.com. Andrew Gavin Marshall, thanks for coming on tonight. Thanks for having me on once again. Well, it's good to have you here, and since you are right there in Montreal, I think the uh, number one order of business for tonight will be the ongoing uh, student protests that are taking place there right now. Perhaps for the American listeners and other listeners out there, you can give a bit of background and context to this. Absolutely. Um it's been a student strike, which has been ongoing for over uh, 75 days. We're entering week 12 at the moment. It started back in February. Uh, it began as a student strike against uh, a 75% increase on tuition fees announced by the uh, provincial government of Jean Charest. And uh, the strikers want uh, a freeze on tuition, which has already increased by $500 in the past five years. And, and uh, the 75% increase amounts to uh, $1,625 spread out over the next five years in installments of $325 per year. And uh, it essentially almost doubles the cost of tuition, which will almost double the cost of uh, student debt. And uh, the, there's been over 160 uh, protests, an average of one to two uh, two to three protests per day in Quebec, uh, which are almost always met with police repression and brutality. I was just at a May Day protest today, uh, which was very peaceful until the, the police charged at us and we had to run. And then they began using tear gas, uh, beating people, and uh, using uh, concussion grenades and began arresting protesters simply for being there. So is there any particular body organizing these protests, or are they fairly spontaneous? Uh, well, there's three main student uh, organizations which are organizing uh, the majority. They're organizing the strike, but the majority of the protest as well. Um, there's two uh, organizations which together represent about 53% of the striking students. There's a total of uh, between 175 and 180,000 students on strike in Quebec, then there's another student organization which alone represents 47% of the students on strike, and that's uh, the acronym is CLASS, C-L-A-S-S-E. They're a very, uh, very militant, uh, radical, excellent organization, and they all function through direct democracy. So all the decisions, they're not run by an executive that makes uh, exclusive decisions like a government does. Uh, they actually consult their constituents, the students, who take votes, who have discussions, uh, and who decide on the policies of the organizations themselves. Uh, and they are the ones who are leading the strikes. And also, uh, with the mass arrests that have been taking place, there's hundreds. Just today, there was 90 arrests. Uh, at the protest I was at, 
And uh, with each arrest, the government fines people $500 each, and class helps bail them out. Interesting. Well, uh, things are definitely uh, heating up in La Belle Provence. So, on that note, let's take a short break. We will continue our discussion with Andrew Gavin Marshall right there in the Belly of the Beast, Montreal, Canada. And we will continue talking right after these short messages. Danger indeed, friends. Well, here we are back on For the Report Radio, and tonight we are going over uh, a lot of information with our, our host, Andrew Gavin Marshall, who, of course, is a wealth of information on a number of different topics. He's always researching so much, and uh, I'm really thankful to him for a lot of his research. It really helps me out as well in the, re- in the reporting that I do here on Corbett Report Radio. So I hope you're following him at andrewgavinmarshall.com, thepeoplesbookproject.com, boilingfrogspost.com, his Articles are carried by many other online publications besides, so just type his name into a search engine, and I'm sure you'll find tons and tons of examples of that. And tonight we are talking to him about what's happening right now, right where he lives in Montreal. So, uh, Andrew, I understand you were at, at one of these student protests today. Perhaps you can tell us about that. Sure. It was um, a protest for uh, May Day, International Workers' Day. Um, it had a couple thousand people. Um, it began very peacefully. Uh, there was a march that took place, uh, walked through the old port of the city, and then up towards the financial district where the police presence became uh, very well known. And uh, there was a, a point in the protest passing McGill University, which is the uh, most prominent university in Quebec, if not Canada. And uh, as we were passing the, this uh, intersection, the police decided to declare the protest illegal, which is something they have been doing at every single protest. And there's been, again, over 160 of them. And uh, at this point, there was a police lineup uh, on a large street that quickly assembled. And then uh, I was taking photographs the whole time. And, and before I could even take a photograph of the lineup, they began charging the crowd. Uh, we had to disperse. And then uh, we saw tear gas being... Uh, dispensed. Uh, they had out their new three-foot-long batons, which they've been uh, using quite excessively, and using concussion grenades. At a previous protest, a concussion grenade uh, hit a student in the eye, and he nearly lost his eye. Uh, and then they began, uh, they announced that anybody who uh, remains protesting will be arrested. Uh, we saw several arrests take place right in front of us. They were protecting the HSBC bank in a police lineup, uh, protecting their real interests. Um, they would grab protesters and take them behind a police line. We saw one protester trying to get on a bus, and the police threw him face first down on the ground and then dragged him away. I have a photograph of that. Uh, and then uh, the protests, I saw another protester be taken away in an ambulance, a young girl. And um, the headlines from the newspapers across Canada, especially English-speaking Canada, um, were already coming out about the protests referring to a student riot that the police had to intervene in, 
was something like the headline from the Vancouver Sun. Uh, the description of the events was that uh, black masked protesters uh, began violence and the police then had to declare the protest illegal and intervene and arrest people. Um, they've been doing this at every single protest. And uh, the result is that what happens is that they actually uh, block off the protests at intersections and attempt to break it up, which they did today. There was uh, The march broke up into several different pieces. They isolate them, uh, trap the marchers, and then arrest them. Uh, of course, tear gas them and hit them with batons as well. Uh, and then uh, each protester who's arrested is fined $500. This is done to try and uh, prevent people from demonstrating across the province, and especially in Quebec City and uh, Montreal. And uh, if a protester is fined again at another protest, the fine goes from anywhere between $3,500 and $10,500. Uh, so again, it's designed to uh, essentially be a, a preventive coercive measure uh, by the government, which has remained uh, completely stubborn and uh, dismissive of the protesters to the point where a premier, our premier, Jean Charest, had, uh, he was speaking to a crowd of his real constituents, mining company executives, uh, because the Quebec government is subsidizing mining corporations to exploit the minerals in the north of the province. And so, of course, there's no money for education, but there's money to give, uh, there's billions of dollars to give to multi-billion dollar companies. Uh, and so he was speaking to a crowd of businessmen when there was a protest outside and he joked about how uh, they should give them jobs up in the north as far away as possible. And, that, uh, and then joked that the whole uh, the conference they were holding was so popular that everybody is just uh, fighting to get in and everybody in the audience, of course, laughed and clapped. Uh, so they really have no consideration for the students, the uh, education, or I guess I should say miseducation minister, Lynn Beauchamp, uh, has been equally dismissive. Um, and they've been attempting to divide and conquer the student groups and the student movement, um, constantly uh, refusing to enter negotiations. And when they entered negotiations last week, it was obviously not in good faith because Lynn Beauchamp canceled them after two days. And then they came out with an absurd uh, recommendation for the students uh, to take, which they didn't mention at the negotiations, so they knew they were going to cancel them. And uh, this one uh, suggested spreading the fees, the increases, over seven years instead of five. Now, with the five-year uh, spread, it would be $325 every year uh, to add to that. And with the seven-year spread, it was $254 a year. Now, she's assuming that we can't do math, because if you add that up, uh, the five-year spread comes to $1,625. The seven-year spread comes to $1,778. So not their solution to uh, hundreds of thousands of youth saying no more tuition increases uh, is to increase the tuition even more. And so obviously they have no consideration for democratic processes, no consideration for a massive student movement, which is now becoming a social movement. It's now becoming about the elites themselves, about the whole social, political, and economic structure of our society. And it's even being referred to now as the Maple Spring, uh, which uh, in French is Printemps Arable, which is, uh, Arable is maple in French, and it sounds very similar to the French word for Arab. So it's a play on the word of uh, Arab Spring. 
but it's uh, a movement which has the potential to spread, but it's also becoming increasingly uh, uh, loud and increasingly present, uh, especially as the government becomes increasingly dismissive and oppressive. And the media across the country uh, is giving horrific coverage uh, to the events that are taking place. And uh, it's a fascinating situation to be in. Uh, it seems that the uh, city could potentially be in a youth rebellion by the end of the summer. So it'll certainly be interesting to see where this goes. It certainly will, and uh, I'm going to confess that despite of all of my years and years and years and years of French education, I never actually put that together, le printemps érable and Arab. Uh, very funny, very funny. But um, uh, yeah. interesting, uh, you paint a very interesting picture. Unfortunately, it's all too familiar to those who have been following these types of demonstrations and protests in recent years, from the SPP summits to the G8 and G20 demonstrations that we've seen around the world. And unfortunately, yeah. it's just another excuse for the, the state to roll out all of its control grid uh, police state tactics and measures. And uh, once again, this is becoming an all-too-familiar narrative. And I'll note that there's a recent Canadian Press article out just a couple of hours ago talking about some of these demonstrations and talking about student leaders being heckled at news conferences by more, quote-unquote, hardline protesters and talking about uh-huh. the masked demonstrators who are causing disruptions and things. So... My my question really goes to the heart of this. I think, given that we've seen these types of demonstrations devolve into this type of uh, excuse for agent provocateur to turn it into violence, which can then be used against the protesters themselves, what is the point of these types of street demonstrations? What will these types of demonstrations actually accomplish? Well, it's important to get out in the streets so that the city and the province and the public itself knows uh, that there is enormous dissatisfaction. Uh, there's a far, a huge difference between signing a petition, which you can deliver to a government and it can ignore, and holding massive protests of hundred. I mean, we had a protest on March 22nd, which drew out uh, over 200,000 people into the streets of Montreal. Another one on April 22nd, which drew about 250,000 people into the streets of Montreal. You can't ignore this. And the protests, after they attempted to... Uh, the student groups uh, at first attempted to petition the government. Uh, they took all the uh, official uh, channels to try and lobby the government to uh, ask them to hold negotiations. They simply refused and said the increases will happen. It's not up for discussion. We're not even considering it. And uh, so, of course, they had to change tactics. Now, the student groups here, which are uh, very well organized and very democratic, uh, undertake... Uh, another uh, means in which they target uh, through civil disobedience, uh, they target the economy. So there were sit-ins on a major uh, bridge going into Montreal, which brings in, it's a transportation bridge for essentially industrial goods, um, a huge uh, amount, dollar amount of economic goods travel over that bridge every day in Montreal. So they target the financial district as well. Uh, the attempt is, if we don't, uh, if, if we're ignored, then we'll make ourselves heard and we'll force uh, the public and the government to hear us. The fact that the Premier was trying to give a speech uh, licking the boots of mining executives uh, and he couldn't even deliver his speech for 45 minutes because of the protests uh, means that uh, the government cannot ignore us as much as it tries. 
and uh, to the whole point of protests and civil disobedience. You have to look at the history of these types of things. It's it's through and public... on that note, unfortunately, we're just right up against the break. So just hold that thought, and we will come no back problem. to it right after this break. Uh, once again, talking to Andrew Gavin Marshall of andrewgavinmarshall.com. And if you want to get in on tonight's conversation, you can join us at 1-800-313-9443, or you can tweet me your questions or comments at Corbett Report. On that note, let's take a short break, and we'll be right back with more after this. Well, welcome back to the program, friends, and appropriately enough, for a program hosted by a Canadian living in Japan that's aired in America with a Canadian guest on the line, we have Neil Young, the Canadian, singing about the red, white, and blue of America. So it's all one big interconnected world, isn't it? And on that note, of course, you are part of this conversation as well, so if you want to get in on tonight's conversation, 1-800-313-9443. Just before the break, uh, Andrew Gavin Marshall was uh, making a point about the nature of, of student protest and revolution and wh- where this is heading, and we will finish up with that, but we already have one caller on the line. So, Andrew, uh, first, can you finish up with what you were saying before the break? Sure. Uh, it was just on the necessity of protest and civil disobedience in any social movement. I mean, if we look at what today is, International Workers' Day, May Day. I mean, this comes from the United States itself. It has a strong history of labor, radical labor agitation, which was all destroyed in the 20th century. So you end up with these corporate uh, labor unions and such. Uh, but it was very radical in the 19th century. And in fact, you know, May Day was uh, a day where uh, the eight-hour workday was uh, agreed to, and people literally fought and died in the streets to have that happen. Uh, you look at the civil rights movement. And people literally struggled and died in the streets uh, in order to have their voices heard, in order to push these issues forward and attempt reforms, yes, uh, not necessarily revolution, uh, but this is an important aspect and an important part of mobilizing people, of energizing people. And in fact, you know, I had friends who uh, occupied uh, the president of my university, they occupied his office and forced him to agree to basically a town hall meeting with the students to hear the students. He agreed to it. Uh, he heard them, dismissed them entirely, and then uh, thereafter the university declared any sit-ins and protests in the school to be illegal. They would even called the riot police on students one time, and they hired a private security firm to come in and patrol the hallways, uh, who have even been abusing students, which has been caught on camera. Uh, but again, still, it's it's increasing the momentum of the movement itself. And it's a very important facet to this. It's not the beginning and the end, uh, but it's a very important component of any social movement. Well, some very interesting and provocative subjects there. So let's see what the caller has to say. We have Lark from Texas on the line. Lark, thanks for joining us tonight. Well, hello, uh, James and uh, Andrew. Lark, are you there? I am indeed. Can you hear me okay? All right, Lark may or may not be there. All right, well, Andrew, let's continue up from where you left. Hello. Okay. Oh, hello, Lark. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> Hi, James, and uh, hello, Andrew. Uh, oh. I've enjoyed, enjoyed uh, your writings, both of you. I want to say something. As someone who's been mostly apolitical my entire life uh, and who was just a breath away from joining SDS, 
back in college, about 1973, I think. Uh, and also is one who today has actually studied the history of SDS and uh, uh, their act activities on college campuses. I want to say that, uh, just to set the record straight, that I know that uh, James, you posed the question about uh, who might behind, be behind Occupy Wall Street, and I think that's been made pretty clear that it was, uh, it was actually a domain name that was registered uh, in 2011 by a Canadian named uh, Callie Lassen, uh, L-A-S-N, the founder of Adbusters and the, uh, the author of a book entitled Culture Jam. And, of course, my phone call comes on the heels of talking to a Christian communist living in San Diego, living in his car and drawing government money. And he was telling me about his uh, sister who went to Tufts and is a professor in Vancouver today. So I guess where I'm going with this, and by the way, um, uh, first of all, regarding the Occupy Wall Street movement, I mentioned already uh, Callie Lassen and uh, him having been the original organizer of this thing. But it's important to take a look at who was behind Kali Lassen. When we mentioned the color revolutions, and we mentioned the so-called Arab Springs, etc., we need to look no further than the partnership between the, the uh, uh, Council on Foreign Relations, uh, academia in America and Canada, and... Uh, um, a communitarian program called R2P, or Responsibility to Protect. This is something that's actually promoted by our State Department. And my, since I have much uh, empathy with people on the left, James and Andrew, it just astounds me that uh, we can't cross that cultural divide and join hands and realize that, yes, we understand the problem is Wall Street, but it's also a problem with the banks, the banks themselves. And we're really not speaking in the same languages to one, one another. And I wonder if you might have some comments in that regard. Well, a lot to consider there. Uh, Andrew, you want to pick up from that? Sure. Um... I mean, there's definitely places where, uh, I guess, if we're discussing this, we could say the left and right. Uh, there's certainly places where they can overlap and find common ground. And on that and, note, uh, once again, we're right up against the break, unfortunately. Hold that thought right there. We'll be right back with Andrew Gavin Marshall, andrewgavinmarshall.com, right after these messages. My sweetest friend. Everyone I know goes away in the air. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
friends. Welcome back. We are here on Corporate Report Radio on this Tuesday night edition of the broadcast talking to our old friend Andrew Gavin Marshall of andrewgavinmarshall.com, thepeoplesbookproject.com. He also hosts the podcast, the weekly podcast series, Empire, Power, and People at boilingfrogspost.com. He's doing a lot of work whilst simultaneously being a student and being involved in a lot of the student protests that are going on right now. So quite a lot on his plate. And tonight we're talking about the nature of protest and revolution and things of that sort. And we'll be talking more about the People's Book Project coming up here shortly. And if you'd like to get in on the conversation, once again, 1-800-313-9443. But right before the break, uh, Andrew, you were about to make a big sweeping point about left and right. And uh, it sounded very interesting. So let's let's get back into that. Sure. Uh, I think that the caller's question was to do with uh, how can we uh, come together on these issues, uh, the left and right. And I think we have to identify, first of all, the common ground, because there is common ground to stand on. Uh, whether you come from a libertarian background or a socialist or anarchistic background, there's certainly uh, a great deal uh, of ground that everyone can stand on together, and that's what's very important to do. Uh, for example, criticizing uh, the banks and Wall Street and corporate excesses. I mean, pretty much uh, those three groups and a plethora of other groups all around them uh, can agree on that, uh, on the excesses of the state, on the state's subsidizing uh, corporations and uh, on imperialism. And these are issues that should be not dividing these groups against each other, but bringing them together. And uh, the caller mentioned Occupy Wall Street and seem to, uh, you know, suggest that we have to look into uh, where these movements come from, where all the social movements come from and originate. And that is an important question. Uh, but there's also, I think, uh, an inclination. And this goes for the uh, Arab Spring as well. There's a tendency to um, uh, look for these connections and then dismiss an entire movement when a connection is established. So with Occupy Wall Street... Uh, there, it's important to look at the connections between the movement and, say, uh, establishment organizations, foundations, NGOs. For example, uh, what's the uh, the change? Uh, there's a big uh, NGO, anti-war NGO type thing, but it's backed by George Soros, and it's coming into the Occupy Wall Street movement, attempting to co-opt it. Uh, but to simply state, therefore, that the entire movement is co-opted, uh, or because uh, Adbusters started the campaign, it took on a life of its own very quickly. I was involved in different protests in both Toronto and Montreal, the Occupy movement, and there was such a diversity of views and discussions and uh, perspectives and different people from different areas. It was really bringing a lot of different sectors together. Uh, but if we simply uh, uh, find those connections but then dismiss the entire movement, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because we don't join it, because we don't add our critique and our information uh, our information, and therefore, if we simply dismiss it outright, those who are still struggling to prevent co-optation uh, won't look to our information because we've already dismissed them. For example, there's certain Occupy groups which have uh, kicked out members uh, from these organizations which are backed by George Soros because they don't want to be co-opted. So they're continuing the struggle uh, to fight co-optation, 
Uh, so we have to join that struggle with them to support them with information. Well, I, I agree, and that's something that I was arguing about Occupy from, from basically the beginning. It's, it is what we make of it, no matter how it started or who started it. It was obviously Absolutely. too big of a beast to be controlled by one person or one organization, so if we don't add ourselves to that mix, then we'll never become a, a part of the, the, the change that we actually do want to it, bring about. But on that note, we do still have Lark on the line, so let's bring Lark back up. And uh, Lark, what, what do you think about that? Well, I just uh, will throw a few things out uh, that where I think there can be some uh, 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 divergence opinion, but I believe some commonality can be explored more successfully. And some of these keywords might be things like uh, William Conklin's uh, advocacy for something called agorism, as well as something called counter-economics. Number one, uh, I also see uh, uh, something that's actually a communitarian program and very well, well organized today called Intentional Communities. You can go to ic.org, I believe, to learn about that. But ultimately, I think it's uh, in a time when, frankly, we see uh, capitalism uniting with fascism and communism to produce a kind of 21st century uh, socialism leading towards totalitarianism, I think we can all unite around wanting to uh, do away with slavery. And therefore, I think we should unite around the idea of private space and private property. And this is where the left and the right can come together in this country, because we face a very bleak future as these bankers, these Wall Street criminals have essentially orchestrated a fleecing of this nation. And uh, they're destroying the middle class. We live in a time when the Communist Manifesto, nearly every plank has been implemented. And we have to recognize that communism is, in fact, simply monopoly capitalism. And, uh, those and are you use the term orchestrate. I think that's a particularly apt analogy because it brings to mind, at least to my mind, the idea of, of maybe a few people at the very top are, who are sort of conducting the orchestra, but also it involves a, an orchestra who may or may not know the full game plan. They may or may not know what they're contributing to each piece of this puzzle, but once uh, it's all brought together by, under the conductor's uh, baton, it, it can become this sort of unified uh, state repression that that functions through state and and capitalism and and uh, the, the the major monopoly capitalists coming together at the very top to bring it all together. So I do see this as, as being a type of generally orchestrated uh, type of movement. And the question is how do we how do we disrupt that? How do we get involved uh, in our in our own way to add to the uh, to the tune to change the song? If I'm not extending the analogy too far. Um, lots and lots of provocative points here, but let me add a completely different perspective into this mix because I've often talked about not being uh, complacent about the uh, the situation of this left-right spectrum or, or even the, uh, the the existence of a left-right spectrum. I'm, I'm quite dubious about the entire notion, and uh, and I am coming more and more to the to the position of voluntarism. I don't. I just do not see why the state should exist at all. And so when I see movements like this, these types of student protest movements that seem to me to be arguing for a better position to eat more scraps from the master's table, 
Um, uh, fundamentally, I mean, I, I think taxation is theft uh, by the state that is enforced at the point of a gun. So I do understand from a sort of, I guess, utilitarian type perspective, the idea of trying to negotiate for a better position in that system. Well, we're living under this this regime, so we better try to make the most of it. I can understand that from a cynical point of view. But fundamentally, I, I just do not think that asking for more more money from, from the taxation violence is going to actually ameliorate anything in our society. You know, asking for anything from government or from another man strikes me as rather anti-American. It's an un-American kind of a spirit. To well, given that you're talking to two Canadians, perhaps we can expand that to an international-type concept. Well, sure. I mean, the whole idea of appealing to the, to the king or to the lord for a damn thing is anathema to anything that uh, a, uh, a free man can... <laughs> Frankly, I think stomach. It's just, it's, it's. Uh, I mean, our real enemy, frankly, is the U.S. dollar, and of course today the Canadian dollar. These things are debt instruments that governments uh, themselves are enslaved to. These so-called elected representatives do not represent or represent our interests. They, they ultimately represent the. Uh, interest of their paymasters, which, All frankly right, well, speaking, let's, let's is a slave master. To get in on this, Andrew. What would you like to pick up from this? Uh, well, I totally agree with you on the point of the state, James. Um, I make no uh, hesitation to identify myself more in the anarchistic camp of philosophical leanings. I'm as distrustful of the economic actors as I am of the political actors and everything in between and all around. In fact, there's a, uh, a term for anarchism, um, which predates uh, the modern terms for these words, the modern connotations for these words. But anarchism is also referred to as libertarian socialism. And it may seem like a contradiction, but uh, Mikhail Bakunin, he was a famous Russian anarchist and actually the greatest ideological opponent of Karl Marx. And he had a quote where he said something along, along the lines of, uh, Liberty without socialism is tyranny. Socialism without liberty is slavery. And that's generally my perspective on the issue. I think that uh, the point of asking governments uh, to do things for you is a correct point. It's, it's totally absurd. Uh, but for the moment, uh, I'll take it in terms of at least it's getting people out in the streets. Because what's going to happen is that the circumstances themselves will change. It's just like what's happening here in Quebec. This was about trying to get the government to stop uh, increasing the tuition. It, it was a very specific issue and a very slight, simple, specific demand. And the, the government's reaction to that has created such uh, an emotional and intellectual and physical reaction that it's now becoming a wider social movement about the very political, economic, and social system itself. So as the circumstances change, as the governments become more dismissive, more repressive, uh, more obtuse and obstructive, then the movement itself becomes more militant, more radical, uh, and more ideolog uh, ideologically capable of coming to new ideas, new solutions. And I think that the idea of demanding things from the government will turn into, over time, uh, the concept of creating things among ourselves uh, so that we can simply work together 
uh, it can be a highly organized society. It doesn't have to be chaotic, but about people coming together to create a new system which simply makes the old one, the existing one, irrelevant. Uh, you don't have to actually destroy anything or even occupy anything, although you might want to occupy the Pentagon. But other than that, you know, you could basically simply create uh, a new system around and through uh, the channels that exist so that the other one, uh, the old one, becomes uh, completely archaic and obsolete, just like last month's iPod. You know, and it can just be uh, fading away after that. But it ultimately is, I think that there's a, a process of revolution, and I don't think this is going to happen this year or even next year. I think this is going to be one of the defining uh, characteristics of this century. But uh, if we don't start now, when do we start? And for now, seeing people out in the streets, regardless of where it is, uh, asking and demanding and agitating and protesting, for now I'll take that as a good start, because I know that the circumstances will change, and so will the people. Well, I think you're exactly right on that point. There has to be an awakening of political consciousness, first of all, for anything to happen. And I think that is very much what we're seeing in these types of movements. So there is at least the possibility for, for this to turn into something better. But again, it does rest on education about bedrock issues as much as anything else. So, uh, Lark, thank you so much for your input tonight. We'll leave it there because I'd like to uh, turn from this conversation about the student protest movement and into a more general conversation about ways that we can affect that type of creation of, of something interesting that we want to bring about. So let's start talking about the People's Book Project and what you're doing at thepeoplesbookproject.com. Okay, well, um, I'm a project manager of the People's Book Project, which is uh, an independent initiative. It's uh, essentially me, but I have a, a sort of board of advisors, including yourself, James, and several other uh, excellent individuals and writers and activists. Um, and uh, the objective is to uh, independently finance uh, through donations from people all over the world uh, a, a research project and a writing project that I'm undertaking, which is to produce a series of books, uh, which is a uh, very critical, radical uh, analysis and history of ideas, institutions, and individuals of power, uh, focusing on the power of domination, but also on the power of people in resistance and revolution. So it's simultaneously a history, a modern history of uh, domination, but a modern history of revolution. Uh, it covers... Uh, the history of central banking capitalism, finance capitalism, uh, corporations, labor history, uh, revolutionary philosophies, their histories. I'm working and researching on several chapters right now on uh, a history of race, um, slavery, uh, the prison system, uh, civil rights movement, black liberation movement, uh, the prison industrial complex, uh, and I cover the history of uh, imperialism in the modern world, from the European empires to the American empire. I cover a great deal of social engineering, uh, aspects of social control, so the history of uh, education itself, 
from mass education to university education, how it's used as a form of social control and social engineering, covering the history of major foundations, uh, the dynastic powers that exist in our modern societies, such as the Rockefellers, Rothschilds, Morgans, Vanderbilts, etc., the major foundations they started, the activities they undertake across the spectrum from things like population control to education to science, psychology, psychiatry, uh, and uh, the technological revolution, uh, and basically bringing this history um, together in such a way that you understand the connects be between the social, political, and economic world, which in school are studied separately, and uh, which is a wrong thing to do because they don't interact separately in the world, they interact together, uh, and they're always interdependent and interconnected. And so we have to understand that as such. So we have to draw it from a historical understanding up to the present uh, and to basically find a way through our history in order to start charting uh, a path to true change in our future and what we can actually do about it. So it's uh, quite a large endeavor, uh, and it's uh, asking you know the questions... Uh, what is the nature of our society? How did we get here? Who brought us here? Uh, why? Uh, where are we going? When might we get there? And what can we do to stop it? And uh, it's, I have no connections to any institution, uh, school, uh, government, foundation, NGO. It's entirely funded by donations from it's uh, it's kind of an experiment in uh, in terms of the alternative media and see if this type of project is viable, which is why I'm so interested in it, and I certainly hope that this will become more of a, a viable solution for people who are out there willing to do this type of work and to connect the dots, as you do at andrewgavinmarshall.com and thepeoplesbookproject.com. On that note, let's take a short break, and we'll be back to wrap things up right after this. broadcast friends here we are on this tuesday night edition of corporate report radio and we've been talking to andrew gavin marshall of andrewgavinmarshall.com also the peoplesbookproject.com and his work is published and available on many other websites besides so i certainly hope that you will check him out if you have not yet done so always a wealth of information and uh, tons of historical information and research that goes into all of his projects so that's why i'm happy to support his work and have him here on the program tonight and on that note, once again, we're talking about the People's Book Project and the idea of funding this type of project, crowdfunding uh, a project that's by and for the people, really. So I certainly hope that you will check that out. And while you're there on the peoplesbookproject.com, you might want to take a look at a sort of overview article that appeared in the last couple of weeks called A Revolution in Thinking, What is the People's Book Project? Which is a pretty extensive answer to that question. So I certainly hope that you will check that out as well. So I guess trying to wrap up this conversation, no easy way to bring this to, to any type of conclusion, but Andrew, any, any final thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with about the project and about the work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I wouldn't be able to do any of this if it weren't for the support of just average people all over the world. I mean, I get support from Australia, South America, East Asia, uh, Europe, uh, readers from literally across the entire world. And it's the people who are supporting this endeavor because I'm providing 
uh, information. I'm providing excerpts from what I'm writing and research from what I'm uh, undertaking. And so people can see the information um, as it as I'm processing it, as I'm uh, writing it and and support it for for what they see it is. And it's it's not uh, the project is simply a starting point. It's to provide this information uh, upon which we can continue to move forward and enact the solutions. And uh, that's really where the crowdfunding uh, from other people can really go towards funding initiatives that actually, uh, like we were talking about before, actually go towards creating a new system. So instead of asking the government for money, you ask people around the world for money to contribute to causes that help people. So you just go around the institutions that exist and create your own. And I think that's fundamentally what it comes down to and how we uh, can start moving forward. Well, once again, I certainly hope people will at least take a look at that and uh, consider how they can get involved, best involved with a project like this, or, hey, maybe even emulate a project like this, because I think the more people who are involved with this uh, in, in different ways, the better. Um, on that note, of course, I have been directing people also to BoilingFrogsPost.com, where you're doing the excellent uh, podcast series, Empire, Power, and People. Uh, what are you working on next for that series? Well, uh, tomorrow's podcast coming out will be all about the uh, student strike and the Quebec social movement and the Maple Spring, and I go into it in uh, a little more detail and uh, cover the key players and events. So uh, it's, uh, I guess tonight was a bit of a taste. Excellent. Well, again, I certainly hope people will check that out and they will be able to follow the show notes for tonight's episode at CorbettReport.com slash radio to both your Andrew Gavin Marshall site and the, the People's Book Project site. So at least that will be a starting point for people taking a look at some of your other work. And, uh, and once again, I think you're doing an excellent job with a lot of research there. So once again, I hope people will check that out. And we'll leave things there for tonight. Uh, tomorrow night on the broadcast, we're going to be talking to Greg Hunter. That will be a very interesting conversation, I have no doubt. And then Thursday night, of course, we'll be talking to James Evan Pilato of FoodWorldOrder.com. Friday night, Friday night highlights. And uh, once again next week, another jam-packed transmission guests basically every night so i'm certainly looking forward to that so to all of you out there thank you so much for listening tonight and thank you uh once again i'll talk to you in 23 hours until then take care <laughs>